morning, church. Good to see you. Good to have you. Good to have those who are joining us online as well. We, we don't know where you all are, but we know you're out there. Somebody was watching this from the service this morning and messaged us from down under. Not Port St. Lucie, <laughs> Australia. So you never know who's watching and uh, who is tuning in. Hey, there's an old saying, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. Tastes like chicken. So how do you love the whole world? How do you... Love the whole world, one person at a time. But small groups can help us take a little bit bigger bite out of that elephant, loving the whole world. Now, love God, love people, serve others. And in January, we were talking about love God and kind of connected that to our church worship service. Here in February, we're talking about loving people. And last Sunday, we were mentioning Loving others is the most satisfying way to live life with a biblical love, a love that's not expecting necessarily anything in return, a love that's focused on actions, not just on emotions. That's a satisfying way to live. Today, I want to connect loving others, loving people through small groups or through life groups. I use those interchangeably. We're talking about a group that meets on a, a regular basis, whether it's weekly or bi-weekly or monthly, and to come together for fellowship, maybe share some food, there'll be some Bible studies, some prayer, uh, a service or a ministry aspect to it. Loving God through small groups. Relationships are so critical. Now, friendships, Dr. Oz calls friendship vitamin F because it is so important to our health. Friendships, relationships are important to our mental health, psychological health, to our spiritual health, even to our physical health. A lot of studies out there that confirm that and affirm it. There's a man by the name of Dr. Donald Joy who's authored a book called Bonding. We talked a lot about relationships and how necessary they are for all of us. And he says, picture your life as a trampoline, a rectangular four-sided trampoline. And if you ever jump on a trampoline, you know you need spotters. And he says, so on each one of those sides of the trampoline, you need a number of people, and they represent the relationships in your life. And the, he's got four categories. And those four categories are, on one side would be first-degree relatives. These are your immediate relatives, brothers and sisters, moms and dads, children, spouses. On another side of that trampoline, a second class of relationships that we need are second-degree relatives. So these are more distant relatives, maybe aunts and uncles and cousins and, and grandparents, grandchildren, that kind of thing. And then on a third side would be friendships, both long-time friendships and more immediate acquaintances. And the fourth side would be your associates from business or from school, and includes church associates in that. So all four sides of those tramp trampoline need to be populated with those four classes of relationships. He said they should have these characteristics, these relationships, all of them. Number one, both of you have a high investment in the relationship. There's frequent face-to-face -face contact. Number two, your relationship has a strong emotional dimension. Number three, each of you knows that in a serious emergency, the other would be there even at the cost of time and money. And number four, your relationship is mutually reciprocal and symmetrical. Both persons can give and receive without keeping score. Now let me ask you, that being the case, do you have a full complement of relationships around your trampoline? Are all of those classes populated? You have four or five in each one of those classes of relationships? 
I, I suspect that many of us do not. For instance, if you started out in a small family and maybe you've, you've aged to where you've outlived many of your family members, you don't have that many immediate family, much less second-degree family members, and you can't magically manufacture new family members, or can you? What did Jesus say about family? He said, who are my, who are my brother? Who is my sister? Who is my mother? He who does the will of my father. She who does the will of my father. That's my sister, brother. That's my mother. That's my family. This area of relationships, folks, where everybody needs their trampoline populated, this area of relationships is an area where the church can fill a tremendous need of vacuum in so many people's lives. The church can step up and fill in the gaps that we all need in our relationships, and especially by using a strategy of small groups and life groups. I want to talk about loving people through small groups. I'm going to say three things about it this morning. Number one, there's a biblical precedent for loving people through small groups. There's a biblical precedent. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. When morning came, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he designated apostles. All right, here's a precedent in the Bible from Jesus. Now, when Jesus preached, he would draw crowds of thousands. But within these crowds, he pulled out a smaller group of 70 disciples that he sent out on a preaching tour. From within that 70, he had a smaller group of 12. We call them the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. And these are the men who were with Jesus throughout his three-and-a-half-year ministry into whom he poured his life. This was Jesus' life group, right? It's a precedent. You know what I mean by precedent? It's an example that is set for others to follow. When Donald Trump was inaugurated back in 2017, on Inauguration Day, he had many things that were scheduled. You know what the first thing was on his schedule? Church for prayer and worship. He started out that Inauguration Day in church for prayer and worship. It wasn't the Russian Orthodox Church either. Um, not just Donald Trump. Uh, President Obama started off his inauguration day in church in prayer and worship. Bill Clinton and his family started off their inauguration day in church with prayer and worship. The Bushes started off their inauguration day in church for prayer and worship. In fact, why did they do that? It goes all the way back to James Madison. When he was inaugurated president in 1807, his family started off their inauguration day in church and prayer and worship, and every president since that has done the same thing on their inauguration day. That's called a presidential precedent. It's an example that was set that others follow. Well, here in our church, this church, Christian Church, part of the restoration movement. Most of you know that. That's not a denomination. It's a philosophy. And a part of that philosophy is, in our churches, we look back at the Bible, at the New Testament in particular, and we say, hey, what are the things that they did, the New Testament church, under the direction of the apostles that we should be doing, that we can be doing? We call it doing Bible things in Bible ways and calling Bible things by Bible names. And so it's one of the reasons we meet for worship on Sundays because that's what the church did in the New Testament. It's one of the reasons the elements of our worship include the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. It's what their elements of worship were. So all I'm saying here is when we look back at the Bible, what their infrastructure was, how they did ministry, discipleship, and love people, we find a biblical precedent of small groups, starting off with Jesus and his life group of 12 disciples. You move into the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's the history of the early church. 
We find out the church started off with 3,000 baptisms on the day of Pentecost, never got smaller after that. But as they got larger, they also got smaller in the sense they were using an infrastructure of houses, house churches, and house groups. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with, sad, with glad and sincere hearts. Acts 5, 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They did have for a while the temple in Jerusalem where they were able for their large gatherings to use the temple courtyards. Eventually the Jews turned against the church. They always had this infrastructure of small groups meeting in homes. You move into the letters of the New Testament. And what emerges here is a picture of a church that's large, but they're meeting in individual homes in small cells and groups. Romans 16.3, Paul writes, Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets at their house. Colossians 4.15, Greet Nympha and the church in her house. Philemon 1.2, To Archippus and the church that meets in your home. The first church building wasn't built, as far as we know, archaeology tells us, until about 300 A.D., they uncovered one in the Roman port of Isla, A-I-L-A. But before that, they didn't have dedicated church buildings. They met in schools and rented rooms and houses. So by definition, when you're meeting in a house, you've got a small group. So it looks like they would have a large citywide church, church in Jerusalem, church in Colossae, church in Ephesus, probably a shared leadership, probably a shared treasury, but they were meeting in different locations in small groups. Now, this is not to say buildings aren't important. Church buildings can be quite useful, obviously. If someone wants to meet in a church house, you know, house church, I have no problem with that. I preached for a house church for a couple of years. It's great. It has its strengths. It has some weaknesses, too. But the point here is this small, this strategy, this technique of loving people through small groups and life groups has a biblical precedence. Always good when what you're doing is founded on what we read about in the Bible. All right, now here's the second thing I want to say about loving people through small groups and life groups. There are relational benefits to doing that, relational benefits. John writes in 3 John 1, 14, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Now in this verse, we see John is talking about friendship, meeting people face-to-face, -face, calling people by name. There's a, there's a strong relational factor between John and these Christians. I mean, talk about calling people by name. We, we probably have about 100 people in this room right now, here in this large church gathering, just 100 people. I wonder how many of us, I wonder if there's someone who could stand up, come up here in the front, and go row by row calling every person by name, without looking at the name tag calling every person by name probably none of us i don't think i i could do that but it's a strong so this is something that's kind of hard to accomplish in the sunday morning larger gathering now last month we were talking about how we grow in our love for god through god's word and through prayer and through fellowship and through the lord's supper and when you meet together in a smaller group say the eight to 12 or 15 people you can have those elements but you have the added benefit of relationships building relationships. We have 59 passages in the Bible that speak about, they're called the one another verses, the one another passages in the Bible. Things such as this, encourage one another, love one another, confess to one another, 
Pray for one another, accept one another, serve one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, teach one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, be humble towards one another, offer hospitality to one another. I mean, can you do those things in the large church gathering? Yes, but to a somewhat more limited degree then you can really accomplish this and grow in our love and our one anothering in a small group format or small group environment. There's a grandmother who took her little granddaughter to church. It's been a long time since either one of them had been to church. And at one point during the service, uh, they were instructed to kneel down. They were kneeling, kneeling down in these tall-sided pews, and the little granddaughter said, Grandma, who are we hiding from? <laughs> well, you know what? In a large church service, you can, you can hide if you want to. You can fly under the radar a little bit. Uh, you can be, what's that, uh, undercover. You can be the undercover boss while you're checking things out. And we understand, we facilitate that. I, you know, if I was looking for a church, I would want to kind of go in there incognito. I want to see if they handle snakes or if they're slapping people on the forehead or what do they do uh, in this church. So that's okay. Hey, back when I was growing up in church, some of you are like me. You, I was, went to church since I was a little kid. It wasn't that way. Back in my day, back in Inglewood Christian Church in Jacksonville, preacher Fred Smith, at some point in the service, he would say, hey, do we have any first-time guests with us this morning? Why don't you stand up and introduce yourself? Boy, that, that goes on. Can you imagine that today? People's number one fear is what? Speaking in public. They're visiting a church, have them stand up and introduce themselves to the whole congregation. So we don't do that. We're fine with people flying under the radar. We want you to come, check us out, do some evaluation, and when you're ready to take the next step, then come to a Discover Luncheon. But still, once you do that, once you've made a commitment, you become a part of the church family, another step to take is when you join a life group because this kind of gets you out of the stands, out of the incognito, just watching the game, and then you get into the game. It's a great opportunity for personal spiritual growth. And while the cover may be blown at that point, it's a lot more fun to play the game than just to watch the game, right? Especially if the game is as boring as last Sunday's Super Bowl was. A lot more fun to play that game than it is to watch that game. But you get it to get into the game, and there's where personal growth uh, takes place. All right, so what are we talking about? Loving people through small groups or through life groups. There's a biblical precedent for that methodology. Number two, there are great relational benefits when you get involved with a, with a life group. And then the third thing we want to say about it this morning is the growth potential. Uh, really the numerical growth potential that is present in life groups and small groups. Acts 4.4, but many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So there's great numerical growth in the church that we read about in the New Testament. Start off with 3,000 baptisms and never got smaller than that. We have a church that's that large, and even a church of this size, say between 250 and 300, how do, you, how do people connect? How are relationships formed? Now, it used, for years, it's been through Sunday school. Tom Rainer, in his book, High Expectations, reveals the result, results of his study of retention factors amongst almost 300 churches. Survey 300 churches talking about retention. When people become part of the church, how do you assimilate and retain those people? He determined that the most effective way of closing the back door and assimilating new people was the old-fashioned Sunday school method. He said, let it be said with clarity and emphasis, no single methodology is as effective in closing the back door as Sunday school. Sunday school is the most effective assimilation 
methodology in evangelistic churches. Well, a good Sunday school class is pretty much a life group that's meeting there at the church building on Sunday. Folks, and that's why, that's why we're building out these wings, right? That's why we have challenged the congregation to step up and, and let's make a significant investment and build out the facility here. And the congregation has stepped up and done so and will continue to do so. So in this way, and especially for young people who have little children still in their homes, we empty nesters, we can meet anywhere. We can meet in a restaurant or we can meet in someone's home. But if you have little children, it's much more convenient if you've got a room that you can go to on Sunday. You've got Christian education that's graded and provided for your children during that time. So yes, Sunday school is great, but the rooms that we have available for adult Sunday school will always be limited. They'll always be limited, and so there's always going to be a role and a place for life groups that meet off campus and in people's homes, especially during this time period uh, while we're in the midst of construction. So the, the great, one of the great benefits of using small groups is that we can, as we grow larger, we, can, we grow smaller. In order to grow large, in order to get bigger, you have to get smaller. What do you mean by that? In order to get bigger as a church, and we want to, we always want there to be room for more, you have to get smaller. Well, here's, here's what that means. The average size church in America is 50. The average size church in America is 50 in attendance. There's a lot of small churches that are 50 or less in America. Four out of five churches in America never exceed 200 in attendance. It's four out of five. I know there's mega churches, but they're the minority. Four out of five churches never exceed, they call, church growth experts call this the 200 barrier. Churches never go beyond 200 in attendance. Why is that? Well, there may be several reasons, but here's one of the primary reasons. It it's, has to do with the paradigm of church ministry in most churches, and that is where you have the preacher is considered to be the primary spiritual caregiver for the congregation. The preacher is the pastor, capital T, capital P, is the pastor of the church, the primary spiritual caregiver. So what happens? If somebody gets sick, goes in the hospital, you call the pastor to come and visit. If somebody needs to be married or buried, you call the pastor. If somebody uh, needs marital counseling, you call for the pastor to come do the counseling. If somebody needs to be saved, call the pastor to come teach and do the baptizing. If there's interpersonal conflict, you call the pastor to come and mediate. Well, if that's, the, if that's the paradigm, where the preacher is the pastor of the church, the maximum, what do you think of the maximum amount of people that one person working full-time can provide primary spiritual care to? About 200. About 200. And even then, he won't do it well. It will not be done well. But that's the outer limits. And that's one of the primary reasons that the four out of five churches in America hit a ceiling at 200 because it's that paradigm. And what needs to happen is a paradigm shift. It's part of restoration as well. A restoring of the New Testament pattern for the structure of the church where there was always several people who were leaders in the church who were shepherds and providing pastoral care for the congregation. These were called elders, and there was never just one. There was always a plurality of elders in a congregation who were leaders and providing pastoral care. In addition to them, 
there was an infrastructure of small groups meeting in cells, meeting in homes, meeting other places where the members of the church are receiving their spiritual care, pastoral care, nurturing, all of this one anothering. When that is in place, no matter how many people the Lord sends to a church, that church will be able to absorb and assimilate those people. One woman had invited a lot of people over for dinner, and uh, as they came time to have the blessing for the meal, she turned to her eight-year-old daughter. She said, honey, why don't, you, uh, why don't you have the blessing for our meal today? <laughs> well, the eight-year-old daughter was caught by surprise. She said, mama, I don't know what to say. And the mother said, well, why don't you just, just repeat what you hear me say? So they bowed their heads, and the little girl prayed, oh, Lord, why did I invite all these people over for dinner tonight? Now, I'm going to let you in on a little, little dirty secret of the church. In churches where the, the preacher is the pastor, when somebody new comes, maybe he's baptized, added to the church, I mean, that person is happy because somebody is saved, but at the same time, they're thinking, oh, my goodness, I can't adequately meet the needs, the spiritual needs of the people who are already in this church, much less another family. That's true. That's the thought process. Isn't that sad? But in a church where you have elders who are pastors providing pastoral care, and the church is willing to receive that, and you have an infrastructure of life groups and small groups, that's not the case. As many people as the Lord may send, they can be assimilated, they can be absorbed, they can be discipled, they can be loved, spiritual needs can be met. And that lid is lifted off the church. And the church can grow. I'm talking about growth potential. That church can grow as large as the Lord wants them to grow. I want to read you one more thing. You know, I like to read the uh, Voice of the Martyrs. It talks, it's about the persecuted church and what's going on around the world. And I, I read this, this story was from last week in their publication. Emilo and Christina lived and worshipped in one of the Columbia's most treacherous areas before Liliana was born. They hosted a life group in their home in the notoriously dangerous region along the Colombia-Venezuela border, an area dominated by the guerrilla-armed revolutionary forces of Colombia. Although their service was very dangerous, Christina and Emilo had a clear vision and a conviction of their calling. They said, we don't fear what man can do to us, we fear the Lord. As fighting between the guerrillas and paramilitaries intensified and the malicious hostility toward Liliana's family and their faith increased, their entire village was forced to relocate. Still, Liliana's family moved with the villagers and continued hosting life group meetings. But Emilo's defiance did not go unnoticed by the militia. And one day in 2011, Emilo left his house and never returned. Liliana, then 13, never heard from her father again. In the aftermath of Emilo's murder, the family's faith was fragile. They fled to Bogota in panic amid hostile threats. And once settled there, they were depleted and scared, trusting no one. They were shattered emotionally and spiritually by their grief. But... About six months later, they met with contacts from Voice of the Martyrs who invited them to move into a safe house where they received spiritual encouragement and time to recover. Liliana said the safe house was a time of coming back together as a family. And over the course of that year, the children attended school and enjoyed a time of rest and security with their mother, and the family received pastoral care from the other Christians who lived in the house. Today, Liliana, now 20, is preparing for life as a full-time missionary among Muslims in the Middle East. She says, my testimony and my life is going to help people. Now, I know we're not in Colombia. We don't face those kinds of dangers, 
But all of us need love. We all need friends. We all need relationships. Many of us are hurting spiritually, under attack spiritually. And your life group is a safe house, is a safe house for many, many people. Now, a large portion of our congregation is already involved in life groups. I know not everybody's going to get involved. Sometimes life circumstances may prevent that. But the challenge for us this morning is if we're not, is just to consider it. And in the bulletin today, there's a, there's a next step section on, you know, next step for life groups. If you haven't done that yet, there's a link you can go to on our website and see all the life groups that are currently meeting and maybe are available for joining. Maybe just cons- give that consideration today. That's, that's the challenge that we're asking for. And many, many of us need to do I need to do that. I've gotten out of the life group phase, and, and I need to get back into it. Actually, I don't need to join one. I have to start one. But uh, regardless, maybe you're in the same situation that I am. That's the next step that we need to take. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what we have here in your church. We thank you, Lord, that you have met our needs for love, for friendship, for family, for relationship. We know that's very hard to do in a group of 100 people or more. We pray that we will see the importance this morning of our life groups. Thank you for those who are willing to open up their homes and host them, for those who are willing to lead them, Thanks you for those who are willing to be to populate those groups and have open arms and open seats because there's always one more who needs to come in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.